I wanted to th really thank uh, Anna Mamoudar and all the other persons that made all this possible. I have to say that I'm very intimidated to talk about, about these things in front of a lot of able persons in metaphysics. And the alarming thing is that I ought to master physics much more than I do. So, a third thing is kind of crazy to try to draw some metaphysical consequences from a theory that really nobody understands that well, which is quite uncanny. So, given this uh, proviso,s let me go immediately to the two claims that I will be trying to defend. If this interpretation of quantum mechanics is a plausible one, then both anti-structural realism in a very radical form and Jonathan Schaffer's priority monism seem to be in danger. Let me say at the outset that I highly respect Jonathan's work. I've learned a lot from him, and I tr will try to get some uh, feedback from him. And the second thing I want to draw attention to is the temporality aspect in monism, which I think it has not been studied yet. And the problem with monism is that cosmic time has a very abstract nature. So I think if you want to try to defend a form of becoming, which is very important for me, because I want to be able to explain our experience of time, starting from the physical side, then I think this relational view of quantum mechanics offers a very good approach, while it seems to me that monism has a hard time to try to defend a sort of becoming, given the problems with cosmic time. Uh, the arguments that we present in a nutshell are, well, in relational quantum mechanics, there are relata, so anti-structural realism seems to be, at least in its radical form, out of our picture. One of the reasons to reject priority monism is that, according to this interpretation of quantum mechanics, nothing can be said about the quantum state of the universe, if you regard it as a closed system. And I already explained why having a minimal form of becoming that is definable in physics is important. This is the plan of my talk. I will start by briefly presenting and defending relational quantum mechanics against some foreseeable objections. In the second part, I will try to illustrate why this interpretation threats radical anti-structural realism. I won't be spending very much in discussing this first point, because Stephen Mumford has done a very good job in attacking this theory, and I will be concentrating on Jonathan's priority holism. And in the third part, if I have time to get to that, I will be illustrating an advantage of this relational view, which is a pluralistic view, and the advantage is that it can account for becoming in a sort of minimalistic sense that has been defended by Stephen Savitt, Dennis Dix, and myself. Uh, this is the very important philosophical presupposition of Rovelli's theory. It comes from Einstein's 1905 paper. According to Rovelli, and I think he's right about this, Einstein did not change the existing formalism. He didn't ins get inspiration from experimental data. He didn't mention Michelson and Morley experiment. What he did, he provided an interpretation of an already existing formalism by criticizing an assumption which is very important in our common sense, namely that there exists a cosmically extended present moment. 
And if you give up that sort of assumption, you give up absolute simultaneity and you get a new physics. So the idea that Rovelli wants to present us is don't change the formalism, change the manifest image. So he draws an analogy, and it's very inspired by 1905 uh, paper. We should change and need an assumption of a commonsensical view, which is very inappropriate to make sense of quantum mechanics, namely that systems have definite properties, independent of their interaction with, and this is a very crucial notion, which he doesn't clarify at all, information gathering physical systems. So the idea is that value definiteness is relative to such systems in the same sense in which simultaneity is relative to an arbitrary choice of an inertial frame. The idea is that we have to relativize notions that beforehand we thought were absolute. This is important in the history of physics. We thought that velocity was an absolute notion. We ended up finding out that it isn't. We thought that the length of an object was an intrinsic property. We now know that the length of an object is relative to an arbitrary choice of an inertial frame. Likewise, of course, for the temporal interval separating two events. It's not intrinsic to the interval, the length. Okay, let us apply this lesson, and I think we should apply Rubelli's idea also, the philosophical underpinning of Einstein's move in 1905, there is no fact of the matter as to whether two distance events are simultaneous. There is a fact of the matter about two very close events are simultaneous because we can perceive them. This is the main principle of Ravelli's view. I can quote from him now. In quantum mechanics, different observers may get different accounts of the same sequence of events. If oh, this is as technical as we will get, so not very technical at all, because these ideas can be understood even by people that, like me, struggles to understand physics. If observer or interacts at T1 with the system in a superposition of states, so the state is spin up plus spin down with the probability given by the multiple square of the complex number alpha and beta, if such an observer gets spin up at T2, Another observer who knows that there has been an interaction but has not yet interacted with O and with S before interacting with those two systems at time T1 will describe this situation with the superposition of state. O is ready to interact with the state Psi sub S, which is in a superposition, and the evolution is linear so that the superposition is preserved, so that the two states are spin up for O, and the state of the system is up, down for O, and the state of the system is down. But after interacting with S plus O, P can, P, sorry, can consist, consistently find that S has observed a down spin, contrary to O's result. That's also a crucial fact which I should stress, according to Rovelli, the weight function is a pure codification of information, so that when we associate with the system as a state psi, this is a pure coding of the outcome of previous interaction between S and A. 
And since these are actual only with respect to A, the state psi is only relative to A, psi is the coding of the information that A has about S. Psi is a relative state, which cannot be taken to be an objective property of the single system S independently from A. Every state is a relative state. Now let us try to understand this view in a deeper way by raising objections to it, and let us try to defend, if it's possible to do so. First of all, the question is, is this an observer-dependent interpretation? Second, does it need, as in Bohr, a sharp classical quantum divide, which is a bad thing? The third point I'm going to discuss, this view generates a dilemma about the nature of this interaction of a system with an observer. And this is also a big project in metaphysics. How can we cover the seemingly definite nature of the classical world of our experience from this relational quantum world? I mean, I think this is a very important task for philosopher. We try to understand the ontology of physics. We take seriously the ontology of common sense, and we have to understand how these two ontologies are related. It better be the case that physics can explain why we perceive the world in the way in which we do. No work has been done as far as, far as four is concerned. I'm not going to talk about the dualism of relations between systems and systems on the one hand and systems and observers on the other, and whether such a dualism really in gen puts into being a sort of dualism of evolution. I will concentrate on the first four points. Is this an observer-dependent interpretation? Well, Ravelli doesn't want it to be so. He quoting, the observer can be any physical object whatsoever having a definite state of motion. So when he talks about observers, he's really referring to uh, observer in the sense in which we talk about observer in a special theory of relativity systems uh, in which we basically uh, attach, to which we attach a state of motion. But the problem is that such an object must be capable of storing relational information. So what does this notion mean? Well, it treats it in a technical way, a la Shannon. But of course he needs to say that if this is an observer-independent view, information must be regarded in a non-semantic, non-epistemic fashion. So it better refer to physical changes and outcomes, and it better just simply entail a correlation of the degree of freedom of these two interacting systems. I'm leaving open, of course, the problem whether this can be done. Now the classical quantum divide, according to Bohr, there is no context-independent answer to the question whether an object is quantum or classical. You can treat an object as quantum, given the kind of experiment you're performing, but in certain contexts you're allowed to treat, say, a macroscopic uh, object with two slits as a quantum object. And this is, of course, uh, coming from a dispute with Einstein. So, at least, I mean, in, in Ravelli's thoughts, this relational quantum mechanics is not contextualist, for more, if you want to have definite results, you have to have a classical world because you don't want Heisenberg uncertainty relations to apply to macroscopic object or an observer. 
it better be the case that position and momentum of this classical object be both definite. According to Rovelli, any physical system can be a measuring system. If two electrons collide, one of the two is S and the other two is the observer O. So he thinks, and I think it's right in this, you don't need a classical domain. This is the crucial question for his interpretation. Let us tell us more, uh, tell us more, really, about this interaction between S and O. First question, is this a physical process or not? If it is a physical process, then it should be described as precisely as we can, for instance, with a sort of dynamical uh, reduction model that Girard, Birini, and Weber have proposed in 1996, where you really have a sort of precise description of what a collapse is. You modify the Schrodinger equation, putting a nonlinear term in it. And this really is a nice way of trying to explain why this Bond rule of psi modulo psi to the square is so successful in making prediction, and this seems a legitimate question. And first of all, why do we get definite results out of a superposition? If it's not a physical process, then the relational view really collapses into a many-world interpretation where you use the phenomenon of decoherence in order to understand why live cats and the dead cats don't interfere with each other. This is not a, a, res a resolution of the measurement problem, but in, if it gets, <coughs> if he accepts this sort of non-physical process move, then of course, you don't have a collapse, but only an appearance of collapse. But in his view, I spoke to him about this, uh, the interaction is a physical process, but he thinks you don't need to describe it in a more precise way, because you have the Hamiltonian that basically describes the process, and what you really get out of this interaction are definite events, outcomes, which are revealed by experiments. So, how can we make sense of this? Well, you, you could say that the interaction between systems is a brute fact. Of course, we have an objection coming from Bell, which basically amounts to claiming that measurement shouldn't be primitive in our physical field. Well, in order to answer these objections, we can try to do various things. First of all, we can claim that De facto, after a physical interaction between a system S and O, S uh, gets definite values, O gets definite values, which depend on S, and you could treat this as an axiom of the theory. But then, of course, the objection is that the transition from entangled states for O, where you have an end, cat is dead and alive, to definite values for O, meaning the cat is either dead or alive, that's the measurement problem. Come, going from an end to an exclusive or. The objection is that we are not explaining the measurement. True, but any deeper explanation, Ravelli could say, might just reproduce those data we already know of. And importantly, I think, this explanation might have no independent support might by predicting new data, that's what we want from other interpretation. We want an explanation to have independent support. This explanation should predict new data, and after 70 years of effort, we don't have a theory which predicts new data.
So, and also we should remember that it's a big question. The one that I put, I think, as a title of this, like what should we explain? What should we explain after a scientific revolution? And I think scientific revolution can be characterized by the fact that what before was thought to require, say, causal explanation after the revolution is regarded as a natural fact which doesn't, doesn't need an explanation. Think of inertia. Before Galilei, the Aristotelian physics, of course, was in trouble to explain why whenever I throw a stone, it keeps moving without any apparent mover. When we understand what inertia implies, there is no causal explanation for the fact that something keeps on moving with the same speed in the same direction. What needs to be explained is why it doesn't keep on moving. So there is really a switch. Same switch with special relativity. Lorentz postulated some sort of mechanism to explain the contraction of a road. For Einstein, this is a purely kinematical fact which doesn't need any causal explanation. It's possibly a geometric explanation that is needed in terms of the structure of Minkowski space. Free fall after Newton, after Einstein, we know that we don't need a force to explain free fall. Free fall is a natural state. So why not treating entanglement in, as a natural state which doesn't need any explanation? And in some sense we could regard this interaction between systems as a fact that needs to be understood as it is. Maybe our explanation, our asking the question, just uh, is leading us nowhere. Finally, this is the big project which nobody has really tried to undertake, given the non-existence of absolute definite properties at the quantum level, and the apparent intrinsicness and definiteness of properties at the classical level, it seems very difficult to explain and derive in the appropriate limit the intrinsic and definite properties of the classical world. Well, I think there is a reply to this objection. First of all, the problem of the emergence of classical definiteness is a problem for all interpretation. This is due to the theorem of Cohen and Specker, which proved that you cannot attribute a quantum system to many definite values unless you go contextual about such an attribution. Second, supposing the classical world is to some degree intrinsic, which I think in a sense we should uh, uh, assume, we could attribute intrinsic dispositional powers or properties to quantum systems. So we could go dispositional about mass, spin, and charge, and this, of course, are properties that manifest in different ways, and I think Rovelli would not oppose uh, the fact that uh, quantum systems have intrinsic disposition which manifest in different ways by interacting in different ways with systems. Now, I'll move to the second part. Uh, let me tell you at the outset that I thought at the, the beginning to use relational quantum mechanics to support Jonathan's view about priority mon monism. Oh, sorry, it's not holism, but monism. But first, let me say briefly why this view is not compatible with ontic structural realism, because according to this view, there are indefinite relata. They are indefinite, but they exist, even though it's through a fundamental relation created by this interaction between relata 
that we are able to assign definite values to the parts. This is, however, compatible with priority monism because priority monism postulates part, and also with structural monism, but it's incompatible with a radical form of monotic structural realism. Now one might be tempted to claim that the only determinate and definite object in this ontology is the quantum universe. But there are arguments against this sort of assumption, which we will now discuss. Let me just briefly recapitulate. There are two sorts of monism. One is very interesting, but possibly false. There are no parts and only the whole exists. The other one, which Jonathan has illustrated and defended, grants the pluralist the existence of parts, but let me quote from him, priority monism paper, the priority monist holds that the whole is prior to the parts, and thus views the cosmos as fundamental with metaphysical explanation dangling downward from the one. <clears throat> These are the three arguments for priority monism, which might be regarded as falling, or at least as sort of being compatible with relational quantum mechanics. The cap between system and observer is completely arbitrary. So why not thinking that what is really intrinsically determinate is the whole? Analogy with the special theory of relativity. What exists is the block. We can slice it in different ways, but the slice which gives us a relative distinction between past and future is not really objective because it is not invariant under transformations of uh, the Lorentz type. What is real is the whole thing. So why not going in the same direction by exploding the analogy fully? Second argument in favor of monism is what you read, if it were meaningless to refer to the quantum state of the universe, no quantum cosmology would be possible. And we want to be able to draw some sort, I mean, to, to develop some sort of interesting theory which combines general relativity and quantum mechanics. Third, this is an argument that has been offered to us by my Michael Esfeld and Jonathan. The quantum state of the universe is entangled, and this drives toward monism, because everything is interrelated after the Big Bang, and the relation of entanglement is not pseudodinient on the relata. Let me discuss these three arguments. But first, let me reinforce the first, just by quickly uh, remind you that there are many ways to partition the quantum world, but each cut between two proper parts, system and observer, is arbitrary, in the same sense in which it's arbitrary the choice of an inertial system. So, what is really in intrinsically real, in a sense, is the whole block universe, and what is the analog in relation to quantum mechanics? Well, what Rovelli and Smolin and other people working in loop quantum gravity would answer to this sort of question is this. Do observers O and P get the same answer out of system S is an endless question. There is no fact of the matter about what is the state S independently of relation to an observer. So it's a question about the absolute state of O and P. What is the meaningful the thing to do is to reformulate this question in terms of some observer. Now, if S is the universe, 
A, oh, I'm sorry, O is contained in the universe, so S can be described only from within, from one of its proper parts, and not from nowhere. And this internal-external distinction relates to relative versus universal validity. Now, I'm using a terminology which has been introduced by Thomas Breuer in 1995. It's a neglected paper, but very interesting. The paper says, basically, that a universal theory makes no reference to observers, but it claims that both quantum mechanics and classical mechanics are non-universal in this sense. And the argument is that they suppose there is an observer which is part of the larger system which she wants to measure. And of course this is irrelevant for both monism and cosmology. Then the claim is, briefly stated, no observer can obtain or store information which is sufficient to distinguish all states of the, syst of the system in which is contained. The result is quite technical, but I mean, the, the, the natural is that there is a necessity of splitting the universe into proper parts in order to find something about the universe. And you could try to claim that if you add up all the possible perspective coming from the possible observers contained in the universe, you could get the universe. But the problem is not all of these perspectives are coherent with each other. Of course, many of them are. So it would seem that the whole cannot have priority over the parts. And Zmolin, in a paper in quantum cosmology, which is a very underdetermined field, which I know very little about, but the claim is that the principle of the absurdity of the possibility of outside observers is a sort of an axiom of this approach to quantum cosmology. So, how to rebut the third argument, which claims, I remind you, that a quantum entanglement uh, is, of course, very important to defend priority monism, because the cosmos for, forms one vast entangled whole, which premise seems to follow from the fact that shortly after the Big Bang, everything interacted with everything else. But again, this claim seems to presuppose an observer external to the universe. In Rovelli's view, which can of course be criticized, the state of a quantum system is a pure codification of outcomes of previous interactions, which are real events. So within this view, there is no fact of the matter about whether the universe is an entangled state or not, because of course also no interaction with the initial state of the universe is possible. If this view is correct, and there's a leaf here, it cannot be the case that all fundamental properties are properties of the cosmos. So if the universe cannot be regarded as the sum of all possible perspectives, pluralism wins over monism. The parts are prior to the whole because only through interactions between parts you get actual outcomes or catch events, which are the building block of space. There is an objection, I think, that Jonathan could raise to this uh, approach. You could say that the cosmos has a property a fundamental property, of having parts that are related in such a way that their interaction reveal determinate values. And this is a correct uh, view, I think. You can defend it, you can uh, accept it. But my fear, and we will discuss about this later, is that this is not saying too much about the whole. If you express the relational quantum uh, theory in this way, 
What you're really saying is how you should build a theory of quantum mechanics. It looks more like a meta description or a constraint about how the theory should be formulated rather than metaphysical property of the whole. Let me get to the third part, which is the temporal aspect of the cosmos. <clears throat> the compatibility of Ravelli's quantum relationism with local relativistic becoming. I think that uh, monists should worry about time <clears throat> and should worry about uh, being able to define some notion of becoming. My claim here is that uh, the nature of cosmic time which is the natural candidate to define becoming, is so abstract and statistically uh, construed that it's not a good way to have the evolution of the universe. Of course, we talk about the evolution of the universe, but we introduce this very sort of mm, complicated cosmic time, which first of all exists only in certain space-time, where you don't have closed time-like curves. It exists only if you assume uh, isotropy and homogeneity. Isotropy is invariance in different directions of space. Homogeneity is invariance under spatial translations. And if you want to define cosmic time, you have to take cluster and cluster of galaxies, assume that there is a point in which all this mass is concentrated. You assume that this point moves with the mean velocity of matter, by using isotropy and homogeneity, you extend this local proper time attached to the particle to other proper times of other fundamental observers. And then you can say that these other fundamental observers measure the same pressure and density that this observer over here measures. In this sort of very complicated assumption, you can claim that there is a cosmic time. But given the statistical nature, I would claim that this assumption it's very much uh, similar to assuming that you can slide Minkowski space-time in different ways. So I think what's really becoming in the universe is a sort of local. What's, what's, what is a temporal becoming? The answer is it's a local world-line dependent phenomenon which has to do with successive occurrence of events. The world-line is a special temporal career of a particle which is time-like related. Let me start from, how much time do I have left? Uh, about 20 minutes. Okay, so I can slow down, I guess. <laughs> Am I going too fast? Well, Albert, David Albert, uh, had a very important complaint about quantum theory. He says, there is no account of the world becoming in time. He thinks that such an account presupposes a privileged frame which is very, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of assumption that it's uh, obvious if you defend the Bohmian quantum mechanics, as he does. But this seems to go against special relativity, of course. Mervul has another approach to becoming, which does not assume any privileged frame, but basically defends a sort of upper plane dependent view of collapse. It defends a collapse view and he wants to claim that you can have becoming in quantum mechanics. You don't have any privileged frame, but you can tell a history of the universe if you relativize such a history to hyperplanes. Hyperplanes are slices of the whole block. This is Minkowski space time, a big loaf of bread 
you can slice this in a different way. According to this slice, you have a history. According to this other slice, you have a history. My worry is, what is the history here? You don't have any history of course. We have a relative history. I think there is a similar move in relational quantum mechanics, but within this perspectivalism, you can claim that there is a very local world-line dependent becoming, which is basically equivalent to the fact that there is one event happening after the other. That's what becoming amounts to. And if you want to be reducing time to causation, you can claim that this event causes this event, and this event causes this event. But events, by definition, happen. And that's what's crucial about them. They are by happening, and that's what becoming is. Obviously, you cannot extend becoming on this world line to other world lines, because proper time cannot be extended. So that's why it's very world line dependent and local in the sense that it's not worldwide. It does not extend at the uh, borders of space. And yet it's objective. What do you need for having such a perspective of becoming basically three ingredients? Events, which are regarded as causal nodes in a relational network, the relational network presupposed by relational quantum mechanics. You need an invariant local succession of events, but you also need a de facto irreversible succession. You need a sort of order. But these ingredients are there in relational quantum mechanics. This needs to be studied more because what the identity really of events are is a big question in this view. If different observers give different accounts of the same sequence of events, then each quantum mechanical description has to be understood as relative to a particular observer. Now, it is not clear whether it makes sense, in my view, to refer to the same sequence of events, since one cannot refer to the putative identity of events independently of observers all. It seems that the identity of events in this view is relational, is extrinsic. It's structural, if you want, since even their spatial-temporal position depends on observers. Mind you, this view is not solipsistic because observers interact and then agree about their description. But the fact that an event occurs or not, I mean, depends really on the observer. You can think that the same picture is obtained in the special theory of relativity. There is a sense in which, if you take seriously the description of observer O prime, this event occurs because it's simultaneous with the here now observer O prime, but this event has not occurred yet relative to the, space, the hyperspace uh, frame of observer O. So this view is not so crazy after all. But you do have a structure of events because the relation of events regarded as outputs of correlation or actualization of interaction constitute space-time. Space-time is a relational structure. If you take quantum field theory, if you take classical general relativity, such relations can be regarded as time-like. There is a succession, local, of course, succession. But if we went with monism and we forgot about general relativity, for the moment, 
And if we took the whole side of events as like prior, we wouldn't have become it, I think, in Minkowski space time. In uh, a general uh, relativity setting, of course, we would have to introduce cosmic time with all the problems I told you about. So it seems that from the perspective of and relative to single world lines, we can have a description of successive states of physical system, which is objective. And the third ingredient is irreversibility, and we do have that too, because the interaction between systems is irreversible, otherwise the measurement record would not be stable. According to Rovelli, uh, if it's, I mean, the eigenvalue eigenvector rule is valid. So even if we don't want to attribute quantum system and disposition to manifest in certain ways in the interaction with observers, I think we should do that, but even if you don't want to go this way, we should treat the interactive process leading to measurement outcomes as irreversible, de facto, non-low-like irreversible. So you have this third ingredient, and thirdly, so, if you want to summarize what I've been saying in these three definitions, we have temporal becoming. Define becoming as the claim that an event E, in an absolute sense, comes into existence simply by occurring or happening relative to a system O. Define temporal becoming as a set of temporally separated events as being equivalent to the fact that relative to all such events occur in succession at different instants of time. Of course, the time is a local time, which you can always have both in Minkowski and in, in a general relativistic manifold. And you also have spatial becoming of a set of spatially separated events being equivalent to the fact that relative to all such events occur at different locations in space. Notice that this source of becoming can be had only in a Newtonian spacetime. You don't have a spatial becoming in Minkowski spacetime. In Newton, you have a privileged foliation of the spacetime. Therefore, you can claim that at a certain instant of time, a set of events which are in space occur simultaneously with that instance of time. I'm summarizing now everything concerning the third part. You don't need an hyperplane dependent notion of becoming, which implies collapse. We don't know how to describe collapse so far. It might be the case that any collapse theory is not going to give you any new prediction given the phenomenon of decoherence. What we have is not a kind of becoming, just a crisscrossing of little ripples unrelated to each other. And this is an incomplete description which each observer gives about the universe, given that she's inside the universe. But I think this sort of one event after the other is as objective as it gets because of the invariance of the time-like relatedness relation. The last thing I wanted to draw your attention to is that relational quantum mechanics is local. It's local because all measurement results depend on observers. So becoming is local also in a quantum sense. And final claim, if monism prevailed, we wouldn't have becoming in even this minimal sense. I think, thank you, and I'm done.